Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm. I'm a reporter here at the good blog TechCrunch, and I am joined by the Friday crew, including my very, very dear friend, Marianne Azevedo. Hello. I hear Texas still has power. For now, yes, but ice on the roads. So pray for Texas, everybody, because it's about to get cold, and that is not what the state is designed for. We also have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, hello. It is lovely to hear your voice and see your face. You too. I think this is the first time we're actually allowed to talk about weather in an equity (laughs) intro because Texas is actually unwell. So I'm proud of us for getting the timing right. (laughs) We've banned the weather talk because we turned out that it was just me complaining about being cold 99% of the time, which no one wants to hear. But we have a packed show. Today, we have funding rounds from Pluto, Free Agency, and Medify, really just awesome companies that we're really excited to talk about. We're going to talk about crypto investment, viz the new 776 Venture Capital Fund. We're going to talk about fintech competition and what it is doing to leadership in the space. And of course, this will bring up our dear Twitter friend, Ryan Breslow. And then we're going to wrap up by talking about autonomy and all things self-driving, comma, but not about cars. So stay tuned for that. This morning though, guys, funding rounds. This has been a week of rounds that were actually very, very interesting. Sometimes they're not. Marianne, I want to talk about Pluto, which is a company that one has a great name and has a great focus and a great part of the world. So tell us all about it. Alex, I was super pumped about this company. I guess it's the fintech nerd in me that got giddy with excitement last night as I was writing. Um, So Pluto is a corporate spend company. And there's a ton of those here in the US, right? There's Ramp, Brex, Airbase, Trip Actions moved into that category. But in the Middle East, the space is far, far less crowded. Pluto raised $6 million in a seed round led by Global Founders Capital. But what really stood out about this raise is the other people who put money into it, which included the co-founders of Ramp, the founder of Airbase, and Plaid's Will William Hockey. So this this just kind of blew my mind a little bit because at first I was like, well, wait a minute, isn't this a competitor? Like, what's going on here? And I know Ramp raised a ton of money today as well, or I guess reportedly raised a ton of money. To me, I mean, they're raising money, they're investing in quote unquote competitors. What was your read on Ram strategy into backing? I guess a startup founded in October 2021. I got a, a quote from Ramp that basically outlined it in PR speak, to be honest. But <laughs> this is an opportunity. And I could see Pluto potentially being an acquisition target for Ramp mm-hmm. one day, to be honest, because you can't open a Ramp account in the Middle East. So this could be a very easy way for companies that have struggled. There's challenges. The CEO was telling me that, like, it's hard. There's corporate cards in the U.S., but they don't really work very well because merchants block the U.S. card bins because they're trying to avoid potential fraud. So it's not easy and it's not seamless, but Pluto can help remedy that. So essentially, it's a geographic play. So Ramp and Brex and Airbase and everyone else compete kind of in the U.S. and probably also the Canadian market. But if you want to have a modern corporate spend solution in the Middle East, an enormous geographic area, you need to have something more local. And so that's where Pluto steps in, fills the niche. And that's why Ramps co-founders and the Airbase founder, but they're putting money into this. It, this feels like Coinbase investing in everybody, <laughs> right? Like kind of like getting some geographical distribution via the checkbook. Yeah. I mean, I started laughing a little bit, Marianne, when I started thinking about, okay, Ramp is an investor, but Brex, its biggest competitor, also doesn't have operations in the Middle East region. So what happens in a world where Brex acquires this company? Am I wrong? Kind of. Brex acquired a company in Israel last year, which is, you know, sort of, I guess you could say in the Middle East. So they actually now have operations in Israel. That kind of probably explains why Brex's founders aren't participating in this round. I want to point out that Israel is in the Middle East, even though PitchBook does include it in its uh, European 
collection of data. There's a lot of geopolitics in that point, but I just want to point out that it is right. geographically in the Middle East. I was curious, and I think we were talking about this yesterday, is like, why hasn't this been done before? And basically, like the pandemic really accelerated, just like it has pretty much everywhere in the world, businesses in the region to accept cards and contactless payment methods, such as like tap pay. So, you know, card acceptance is a lot more widely accepted than previously. So the founders of Pluto really feel like they're in the right place at the right time. They've got a an office in Dubai and one in Toronto. And then I think they're mostly... They're fully remote. So there's only like five people so far, though, let's point out. Also, just how much of the space is kind of spreading geographically. We've talked about, I think, a company called Mindel, which is tackling the Latin American corporate spin world, and also Clara, which I think is based in Mexico City, if my memory holds up. So we're seeing geographic plays in this space. And I guess because the U.S.-based startups that are working on this are the best funded and the most mature, I, I believe, Maybe it's less shocking than I thought it was to see them putting some capital into these more nascent geographic focused plays in other regions of the world, because why wouldn't you? It de-risks your own strategy. It gives you insight into the space because now, you know, both Ramp and Airbase can see what's happening in Pluto's business because Pluto won't tell us it's total payment volume, sadly. But if I'm an investor, I get access to data. It's faster and easier for them to get insight into the region. And also I should point out, Pluto is only a four month old company. It was founded in October It's still in the pre-launch phase, claims that it already has 35 customers in the pipeline. It was able to attract all these large investors and the pre-launch phase is pretty interesting as well. Before we jump to the next round, I just wanted to get, I guess, your read, Marianne, because you wrote so many funding round stories this week. Why was this the one that kind of broke through the noise for you? A, we don't really cover the Middle East region very often. So it was fun to like venture into that part of the world. It's a pre-launch company raising from really interesting investors, global founders. Capital is large, based here in Silicon Valley. Then the founders like really pushed me over the edge when I when I realized that Ramp and Airbase's founders and William Hockey and and mind you this is just a small number of the ton of angels that put money into this round. Party rounds are good again, but let's go ahead and move to our next round. We're going to talk a little bit about a company called Free Agency and uh, how it may be solving the technology talent war just not for employers. Natasha, what's going on? Yeah. So we all know the hiring market is wild right now. I think a lot of the conversation has been about employers struggling to find talent. But on the flip side, employees are getting inundated with inbound cold DMs, just like LinkedIn requests. I don't know about you guys. So I I was really excited to see free agency because it had a kind of, I think, radical idea to start getting tech workers agents similar to those in Hollywood or in sports. And if you think about it, tech employees at a certain level are making a lot of money. They have a lot of negotiating power. And if you're a director at Shopify, I'm pretty sure everyone's knocking on your door. Free Agency, co-founded in 2019, raised early capital off of helping candidates set up with agents and kind of handling the recruitment process for them. And then this week they raised more money. They raised a 10 million Series A led by Mavron and 20 of their clients also participated in the round. I absolutely love this because one thing that I haven't liked is the imbalance in negotiating. And I've been on the hiring side and I've been on the hired side. It's always like the potential employee having to guess how much wiggle room there is in an offer because every company that makes an offer has a range 
and they don't tell you this, but there is a range written down somewhere and they want to stay within inside that range and they want to get the best talent at the lowest possible price. You, the individual are at a huge information asymmetry. It's, it's not fair at all. And you're supposed to negotiate against a large corporation, Microsoft or whatever. Uh, and also negotiating garbage. I hate it. And also uh, women historically negotiate less and that leads to lower salaries for women, which is BS. So hire someone to be your bad, your, the bad person, right? Let someone else handle that shit. I love this. I think it would be really fun to have an agent negotiate on my behalf, honestly. But is this really only for elite employees? Because the money for this is coming out of their pocket, which is kind of a flip of the current usual model where companies pay recruiters to find them candidates. And then in this case, right, the employees are paying for the service. So employees pay between five to 10 percent of their first year of their future salary that free agency helps them hopefully secure, which is a lot of money. They didn't share their whole revenue, but I think they shared that they've secured 200 million in negotiated compensation for total salary offers for their clients so far. But I agree, Marianne, like I think there is a limited TAM here. There's only a small amount of people who one, have the bargaining power and also like have the ability to feel confident in going through an agent. At my initial allergy to the startup idea, even though I was obviously very interested in it, is like, do I feel comfortable where I am in my career right now to get represented by an agent? Or does that feel clinical? I think once you get to like a C level, it doesn't because that has been proven out. Of course, the retort is the great resignation and employees have so much power. So they should get representation now. That's way too modest. Seriously. Think about it this way. Why shouldn't you have a team when they have a team? The corporation has a whole team built for this. They have they have a recruiting team. They have recruiters, both in-house and externally. They have an HR department. Why shouldn't the individual whose talent people want to buy for money have someone to help them negotiate the sale of talent for money? All employment is an exchange of goods for capital. Cool. Why not have someone make that work out for you? Now, 5 or 10%. Now, the question is, can you essentially make that back with this negotiating help? Let's say you make 100 and your negotiator helps you get to 110. It probably kind of washes out in the first year, but after that, it really yields long-term dividends because you set a new salary floor for yourself against which all future raises and future jobs will be measured. So to me, the actual TAM for this is huge. It's anyone who makes more than 50K a year, probably. I mean, like now to be clear, you won't get as much love for 50K a year, 5% versus 500K, 5%. But like, I, I don't see why this doesn't become for a lot of folks is less on us to get there and more on the startup to get there in terms of who it serves. Free agency will only become a company that makes sense for like venture capital when it expands past the C-suite, which is white and male right now. So I think right now their initial target audience by nature of historic inequities looks this way and which is why they haven't disclosed their diversity metrics. But I think the real way that they'll move the needle, which their co-founder agreed with me, about is that if they can help historically overlooked people get access to networks and key information, then that's something you'd pay for if you're someone who isn't getting Coinbase inbound, but has a co company for you to get there. But let's end with Medify because it kind of got into my favorite sector, EdTech, and your favorite sector, gaming. It is doing gaming coaching, which I actually didn't even know was a thing. Alex, walk us through it. I just want to point out how far we've come in which I'm no longer being mocked as being SaaS boy. I'm now gaming boy. This is an upgrade. You've been writing a lot about gaming. I'm here for it. I've also been spending a lot of time gaming, um, which I shouldn't be doing. I should be reading more books. Anyways, uh, Medify, a startup that has a marketplace to allow people to find coaches for particular games, has raised a $25 million series led by Tiger Global, 
and also 776, the Alexis Ohanian fund that we're going to talk about in just a minute. Notably, the company had raised five and a half million only on top of a $3.5 million seed round. So essentially about 8 million pre this A. So it's a lot of money. For Metify. I, I really dig this company. I think the idea of having a marketplace for training in general is a good idea. And the gaming world is very competitive. And I think we're seeing esports as a general concept become more popular, both at the kind of amateur and pro level. And um, I, I know I often bring up Marianne and your kids, but I, I'm curious, like, do you think that esports are sufficiently popular amongst the kind of like teenage gamer group that there is enough demand in the market for this product to kind of reach all the way down to where your kid is? That is one actually leads to one of my questions first for you, though. Is this like targeted toward amateur and pro or one or the other, because I feel like amateur players, like for example, my son is a, is a teenager and it's not like he's rolling in the in the cash yet. Like teens like him aren't necessarily going to be able to pay for this sort of thing. So like who is their target customer? I think it's pretty, pretty broad, frankly. And, and coaching is actually pretty variable level. There are some people on the platform who just want to interact with the community of a game that they love. So they charge like $5 an hour for their time because they just want to hang out, talk about their favorite game and do this. All the way up on the site, there are actually people who charge for poker training and also sports betting training. Basically, anything that's a digital environment that involves skill is in their remit. And so the prices go from very cheap to very expensive, depending on the coach and the actual game in question. But just picking my, you know, a game that I love, like Civ 6, um, 20 bucks an hour for some coaching, if you buy a couple hours of it, you can probably learn quite a lot for a couple of weeks allowance. If that makes sense. I didn't realize it was like that inexpensive, like it was that accessible rather to to people. So that's interesting. And that could help explain why the platform spend has gone up so much. Right, Alex? Yeah, it's reached, I think, a million in total platform spend in the last year. And the data points that we've had are showing pretty rapid growth in kind of a monthly basis for demand. So I think that gaming has become a thing in which you don't just want to be terrible at it, but you also aren't going to go pro. Like I, I took trumpet lessons from fifth through 12th grade. And that was one of the best things that I did because it taught me a lot about discipline and training and being competitive and learning and craft honing, if you will. But, you know, kids play games these days. And if you pay for a soccer coach, why wouldn't you pay for someone to help your kid out with League of Legends so he's not the scrub on his friend's team? I am definitely still trying to catch up on everything that has changed in gaming. And that point you just made makes me think about this conversation of play to earn that we've kind of talked about on the podcast, ah. mostly talked about in meetings, but I'm wondering how it fits into Metify's round because it does feel like there has to be inevitable tissue there. No, it's a really great point and not one that I actually really thought of. So thanks for bringing that up. The, the idea, as far as I can tell based on your question, Natasha, is in a world in which there are more play to earn games versus just play to win or play to crush your friends publicly, there's actually a greater incentive to grow your skill because you can theoretically earn more money. So if you're playing Axie Infinity, Natasha, and you want to get better at that, you get some coaching, you can increase your earnings, perhaps. That to me, as with all things play to earn, feels more like a job. And I think that most games are not played for economic value and nearly no one goes pro. I know this because I've played hundreds of hours of League of Legends and uh, no one has thrown a contract my way. <laughs> so my guess is if play to earn goes big, it'll fit into Metify, but the company seems to be working as a model even without that. So that's probably a potential sweetener versus a requirement for success. But listen, guys, uh, we have a lot more to talk about. So let's move on to crypto investment. This has been a theme uh, on the site. It's been a theme in our conversations. It's been a theme on the tweets. It's been incredibly active. Marianne, I want to talk about 776 and their new $500 million vehicle. 776 is a venture fund. 
founded by Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, said that he plans to invest primarily in crypto startups out of the new fund and 40% of its current portfolio of about 38 companies are crypto related or is crypto related. I, I feel like somewhat saying something like I'm going to invest primarily in crypto companies could have meant a lot like a year ago. But today I'm like, every company could have a crypto strategy. So I am wondering how crypto forward each startup is going to be like Metify, for example, I don't see an obvious crypto connection. I'm not. And apparently he obviously is not saying every startup has that. But that was like my first kind of giggle. Yeah. After I saw the headlines coming out of him going all in on crypto. Especially if you've seen his tweets, you knew that he was into crypto things. Like this isn't a, it isn't like Jason Lemkin, you know, the 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 kind of granddaddy of SaaS investing, if you want to put it that way, is jumping into the NFT game. That would have been a shock. But to see Alexis do this is very unsurprising. And I asked him about it. What's the why? Why crypto? And he's like, look, we follow the lead of the smartest founders we meet. And so, you know, basically, if if he's meeting founders that he thinks are super super smart, and they're founding companies that web three companies or crypto companies, then he wants to back them that, you know, basically it's simple as that. Even though we roast crypto a lot for being cringe on the pod, I am excited for how Alexis plans to expose his, I mean, quite diverse LP base to the asset class. I mean, we know that women and people of color are investing in crypto at higher rates, but Marianne, their LP base, you got the numbers. Pretty impressive, right? He made it a goal from the beginning to have a diverse LP base and says currently 51% identify as female, 13% as black or indigenous, and 10 as Latino or Latinx or Latina. So pretty diverse base. But, you know, let's be clear. I mean, yeah, he's into crypto, but he's also into a lot of other things, climate tech, space tech, food tech, and good old fashioned SaaS businesses, as he says. While crypto is a big thing here, I just want to make sure to emphasize that it's not the only thing that 776 is going to invest in. Remember when everyone was just putting money into B2B SaaS and we got bored of that? Now I feel like everyone's putting money into crypto. I'm getting kind of bored of that. I'm hoping that we get to hear more about their deals that are non-crypto. Metify, of course, being one of them. It was actually funny. I wrote that. And then the next day, this fund got announced and they're like, we're doing crypto. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. But one thing that Josh, the CEO of Metify said was that Alexis has a lot of connections in the world of, I forget if he said celebrities or influencers, but essentially he knows a lot of folks. Of course, his wife is a well-known sports player. And so I think that that's one of their value adds. And if you're in the crypto space, which does trade quite a lot on reputation, it seems, to get people interested in projects and, and kind of art and so forth, it's probably a pretty important thing to have. So Alexis may have a past just having capital. Speaking of reputation, this week, India had news. India announced a tax system for crypto-related transactions in which income from the transfer of any virtual assets will be taxed at 30%. And so originally I was like, this is going to have a chilling effect. X, Y, and Z, crypto winter, let's go. And then I read the story and I was like, oh, crypto needed to be taken seriously. And so I guess in a weird way, a tax system is giving it much more validity. So I was reading a lot of forum threads about this, trying to figure out, is this bad? Is this good? Because you know when you ever announce a new tax, whenever you announce a new tax, it's not exactly a bullish thing. But in this case, you're right. It is about reputation, recognition, and the fact that this formalizes or will formalize, I should say, this is not finished yet. They're still getting input and so forth, but it will formalize the crypto world inside of India, which of course abuts other nations that are less enthused about the crypto world. You might think of places like China. And so as China moves to clamp down on the crypto industry, essentially killing it off in favor of a centralized digital yuan, here's India really moving forward. Is 30% high? Yes. Will that be the final number? Probably not. And there's a lot of questions that remain, I think, Natasha, about 
what counts as a transfer, when does this tax come into being, and so forth that need to be figured out. But it's some important regulatory brush clearing, if you will, that should lead to, I think, more clarity and more investment. Thank you for that nuance on it's not yet a done deal. So this could 100% change and very well may by the next time we record. But we're bringing this back to 776 and just all the funds you're hearing that are going all in on crypto. It does mesh well with the renewed focus on India. India came up almost every podcast last year. It has had so many unicorns and just is getting so much deserved attention. And so I think the crypto tax is probably good news for a lot of these US-based investors that can invest internationally now. And also, isn't India planning to launch a digital currency by next year? I know nothing about this, actually. So mm. I, I, I don't know who does. Alex, do you know about this? Natasha's like, don't throw me that hot potato. <laughs> that, I absolutely refuse to take part in that part of the conversation. I'll talk about anything but that. So, uh, and by the way, we left, we left in my screw up the other time, I think. So that way, Natasha has to Please. eat that one because she demanded that we keep my flub. So They're so good. They're so good. Mistakes are good for the audience. Mistakes yeah. are good for the audience. By the way, this is why you should tune in to the Twitter spaces because we get to kind of, you know, just ramble on. It's live. So you don't get to see what gets cut out by the production team. India has actually been pretty smart in introducing a lot of state level fintech elements that have shown a lot of uptake in certain areas. And I'm not going to get into exactly which products because that's way past the remit of this section. But I'm not surprised to see the country also working on its own kind of digital currency. And I don't think it'll be a way to suffocate the world of crypto, which is growing pretty quickly in India, as we're seeing in China. I think they're trying to thread the needle. There's optimism in my comment there. We'll see how it bears out. But I just want to close off this section by noting that the optimism that the Indian government is showing and that the crypto scene is seeing there is being kind of borne out in the broader venture capital world. We have some early data that I put together on crypto investment thus far in 2022. Of course, super preliminary numbers, but it looks strong. Even though we've seen Axie Infinity tail off in terms of volume, even though we've seen um, a lot of... <laughs> wild stuff in the NFT space. Uh, we've seen Coinbase lose momentum. Robinhood's earnings show a lot of uh, decline in, in, in uh, crypto trading and so forth. So there are some negative signs, but not showing up on the venture side of the tally. Also, FTX raised this week. And I don't know if I have much to say on it other than the fact that it raised at an insane, I think, $32 billion valuation. So another data point, not that we needed one. I mean, they raised $400 million this week for their main company after raising $400 million, I think it was the week before for their US operations. I'm broken. So $800 million into a $40 billion aggregate valuation. Uh, I'd take those terms. That's great. Yeah, yum. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about fintech and especially fintech through the lens of executives. Marianne, can you tell us a little bit about what is going on with L'Affaire Bolt? The CEO and I think founder, co-founder of Bolt kind of went on a, this thread of tweets just going off accusing VC firms, a, a large company called Stripe, of trying to squash its growth. I think that Ryan made a lot of good points, but the way he went about it ruffled a lot of feathers. And our own Connie uh, Loizos wrote a, an excellent story this week and talking about how Ryan has now stepped down as CEO of Bolt. Ryan was tweeting today and I asked him about his super voting shares that Connie pointed out that he owns in her piece. And I asked him, are they 10 or 20 votes per share. He did not respond. He did tweet my article that I wrote about him. So I know he sees my tweets. He's just declining in this case to, to answer. The, <laughs> the point is, yes, he's stepping down as CEO. 
Yes, he's taking up, I think, chairman of the board, but uh, we reported that he has super voting stock, so he still controls the board. He still owns and kind of runs the company, a bit like how Facebook investors can't really ask Zuck to stop spending all the money on metaverse stuff because he controls the company. It isn't he who has the gold makes the rules, it's he who controls the super voting stock, in this case, Ryan. So it's not like he got fired, it's more like he just went kind of crazy for a bit and uh, moved upstairs. That's my read. Natasha, am I being unkind here or is that fair? I think the point you're trying to make too is like, this is more of like an optics thing than like an actual change in how Bolt will be run and thought of. So we'll see Ryan maybe take, yeah, a, a quieter role at the company. I think it's the timing is unfortunate for Bolt's PR team because Ryan obviously said that this was in the works and this is not related to the Twitter tirade, but it, the timing is too good to be true there. Um, I do want to take, I guess, a second to explain actually what his points were, because I, I am more interested, him aside, I'm more interested in what he said about Stripe NYC, which no one dares to talk about in a negative light ever. So this gave us, Alex, I think a really, as you mentioned in a column, like some much needed tech Twitter drama. But his top line was basically trying to underscore the power that Stripe and YC have in Silicon Valley. He attributes Bolt's, I guess, lack of being able to win against Stripe, basically punching up due to the fact that they have YC and other top VCs on their side. Basically, Stripe taking term sheets from top VCs just so they don't invest in other companies. That is the kind of the top argument. Am I right? Yeah, he kind of pointed out that the Y Combinator collection of companies, founders and investors that are tightly known to invest into YC companies, which is a lot of VCs, formed a kind of mafia to kind of keep Bolt down. And in the thread, he made a lot of various comments and, you know, just general point. If you're the CEO of a company and you make a claim, you can't do conspiracy theories. You have to have it backed up. And so his points about like Hacker News, which is owned by YC, something we should keep in mind, like deleting Bolt comments versus, you know, other comments. Oh, he looked a little silly there frankly, but it is worth noting how much power rests at the nexus point of some major platform companies and some major capital pools, Stripe and then YC et al. And Marianne, you and I have written about this. There was, of course, the celebrated cause of Phoenix versus Sequoia. Sequoia had led a round for Phoenix. It's like a payment infrastructure company. And then they had to withdraw as an investor, which sounds really weird to say. It was all because they quote unquote, realize that Phoenix might be a competitor to Stripe, which is one of the biggest companies in its portfolio. And in that case, they did not take back the $21 million that they had put into Phoenix. If you can take a for-profit investor with as storied a history as Sequoia and as much in-market influence as Sequoia and make them take an enormous amount of money they've already invested and walk away from it, you have a lot of power. For example, if I tried this, I was like, Sequoia, give up your Phoenix deal. They would be like, go f yourself, Alex. We don't care what you think <laughs> because I don't matter. Stripe, on the other hand, does. Right. And that does go to show the things that Ryan was trying to detail, which is that we don't talk enough about these nexuses of power. Fair enough. Is there a conspiracy against Bolt? Yeah. There was a great thread from an investor saying that Bolt was always trying to raise ahead of its metrics and that was an issue. 
I think Sequoia and Phoenix have always come up as like an historical example of competition. But I do think this is separate in a way, just because Bolt's argument seems to be more there is like this ploy of all VC against the company versus with Phoenix. It seems like there was a little bit of like a back and forth that ended up being a PR nightmare for them as well. But my takeaway from all we've seen is that the YC stamp of approval is something that is celebrated on TC, on Twitter, on a lot of things as an interesting data point. But it does come with baggage, especially if you get the YC stamp of approval, but don't get it forever and are not the one that they continue to bet on loudly. I feel like it it made me think a little bit more about how these networks work and and what power they could have. Maybe not that they do or are using, but the ones that they do. I think also it goes to show just how competitive the fintech market is because Bolt has done a very good job raising money. The valuation is, I believe, north of $10 billion. So it's not like they failed to to scale. It's just that they felt like they were kind of hindered along the way. I think we're seeing a lot of these major players bump up against one another. The one-click checkout space versus Ooh. the payment space is going to overlap in a way that is very, very obvious to everybody who doesn't have a vested interest in pretending that it won't. So like, we're going to see more and more scraps between these companies. If you want to see why that's the case, go to Stripe's website and then look at their product mix. Look at what they offer. It's a bunch of stuff, which means that they want to own an enormous portion of the world of fintech, which is fine. They're a for-profit company. But as VCs fund competitors, there's going to be some tension there. And so I hope, I pray, I will reconvert to religion if this happens. May there be more Twitter drama because it is clarifying. All right, now let's go ahead into our last topic here. We have rambled a little bit, so we're going to have to be concise in our discussion of this. But this is a topic that we almost talked about last week. We ran out of time and we're going to fit it in this week if it kills me. Autonomy, not through the lens of cars. I've been watching the space guys for so long because I hate driving and want cars to do it for me so I can sit in the back and read quietly. But it turns out the technology, the work that has been done to make autonomy and self-driving possible is showing up in other places. Natasha, we have four headlines to run through. Can you give me the bullets? 100%. So Grace found these four companies all raising really close to each other. So of course, we paid attention to them. And I'll run through them as fast as I can. So first, we have Vecna, which raised 65 million. They want to replace forklifts, which account for so many incidents every year. There's also Agtonomy, which raised a ton of money. They're in a similar space. like They are also trying to make ag tech robots in replacement of tractors. Then the last two I want to bring up are Electric Sheeps. They are trying to take on the $20 billion market of lawn mowing with robots. And Agen, which is building solar-powered autonomous robots that can zoom around fields, quote, using computer vision to tell a friend from a foe and a plant from a weed. The common theme between all four of these rounds is that they're not building to get us into space. They're building to make farming better and for there to be less incidents. That's why I'm really into it. All right. So Alex, sorry, I am not into self-driving cars yet. They scare the hell out of me. I don't want to be near them. But when it comes to autonomous forklifts, lawnmowers, there was somebody that quoted, this technology is more about necessity than convenience. And I love that. And I agree with it because, okay, with forklifts, if you can avoid accidents in warehouses, that's amazing. If you can help address staffing shortages in the farming world, that's incredible. Two of those rounds were led by Tiger Global, which I also found notable. Tiger Global, currently leading the MetaFi esports coaching marketplace and the local robot startup near you because they ran out of SaaS companies to invest in. I'm hype about this for a zillion reasons. Uh, The forklifts 
part of this. One, it's a $65 million round, so an enormous amount of capital going into this. Forklifts are tricky things because they're always going in between narrow hallways or in and around where people are. If you've never been in an operating environment where people are driving forklifts, you don't realize how much skill it takes to do this, but real forklift operators are magicians. It's a space that's difficult and dangerous and a, and a great place for autonomy, even though I will miss the YouTube videos of forklift drivers doing tricks. Love those. On the weeding point, on the point of Agen and weeding, this is a place where we can use technology to reduce human misery because weeding large scale plots of land is often very labor intensive and it sucks. It's miserable. It's terrible. And it's often done in lesser weather conditions than you'd like. And it's just a place where why can't we use tech to let humans not do something? So I'm excited about this. I'm glad the tech has gotten to this point. I feel like a VC to bring up total addressable market yet again on this show. But this is the first time I'm seeing autonomous really like obviously tied to a broad set of people that will benefit. So I'm not surprised that we're seeing ag tech rebrand its way into a more accessible use case. It kind of leads us to the last story we want to talk about, which is also about universalizing autonomous technology. MongoDB's co-founder actually started a separate company called Viam Robotics, and that company raised 30 million Series A led by Tiger Global this week. Beyond the fundraise, because I don't care about that behind beyond Tiger, he had a pretty cool hill that he wanted to die on about the mission of Viam and why it makes sense to raise that much money. The goal is to make, quote, building and programming a robot as simple as assembling web services. And, and this is really cool. Once you can take something, atomize it, and turn it into discrete blocks you can plug and play in other parts of the market, you can do a lot more a lot quicker. And so the work that has gone into autonomy seems to have matured to the point in which you can deploy it like in a almost no codish environment, if you want to think about it that way, of adding kind of things here and there. And therefore, you can make more robots do more and more quickly. Gosh, that's very exciting to me. I mean, in, in the future, looking far off as a science fiction dweeb that I am, why won't we have tons of robotic factories here in the United States that can do quite a lot of stuff that will prevent offshoring, which is a, a labor issue, and also transport, which is a climate issue. And so here we're seeing kind of autonomy have implications for a wide swath of the economy and the ecology of the planet we live in. So I'm very excited about this. Although I will say MongoDB is a company I don't think about enough, and I need to go check and see how they're doing now that we brought them up. The interesting kind of end note there is that if this company succeeds, it makes all the companies we just mentioned jobs a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier, and could bring the, this topic up more and more for everyone on this show and everyone listening. That'll be exciting to watch as well. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have to stop there. We started in the Middle East talking about corporate spend. We ended up discussing labor rights, video games, Alexis, crypto, why Ryan Breslow should tweet more, and wrapped up with MongoDB's co-founder making robot building blocks. This has been Equity. We adore you. Goodbye. Thank you.